Well, today we are going to be talking about a story in the life of Jesus, about a job that no one wanted to do, but Jesus did it anyway. I want to welcome all of you who are here at all four of our campuses at Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb, and here in St. Charles. We're so glad you're with us today. I also want to say hello to those of you who are with us online. We know there are lots of people who are sick or they're out of town or maybe you're just checking out the church for the first time and we're so excited you're doing that, you're joining us in that way. Uh, Here at Christ Community Church, we have a mission and that mission is to make passionate disciples of Jesus Christ. And we think a passionate disciple is marked by four things, belonging, growing, serving, and reaching. And so at Christ Community, we work those four things into everything that we do. These are the the heartbeat of our church because that's what we want for you. We want you to experience a deep sense of belonging to God and to his people, a sense that you've got a relationship of love with Jesus that's right at the center of your life and, and that you have a family here, that you have a home here, community here within the church. We also want you to experience growing, We don't want you to be static or stuck right where you are. We want you to be growing in your love for God and your knowledge of God's word, uh, in your freedom from things that keep you from being like Jesus. And we want you to experience serving, uh, being invested in the needs of other people, uh, in your own family and coworkers and friends, uh, but also within our church and in the community around us that we've been called to love. We want you to experience reaching, sharing the incredible news, the incredible hope of a relationship with God, a life-changing, eternity-changing relationship with God. So that's what we're all about. Today, we are starting a series that is gonna focus on just one of those marks, the mark of serving, and we're calling it Love Serves. And to kick us off, we're gonna look at a passage in the book of John. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to John chapter 13 with me. Uh, Let me give you an overview of the book of John. Uh, It's one of the four biographies of Jesus, along with Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the story we're reading is right at a turning point in the book. John has 21 chapters. It it starts off in the first chapter with this grand cosmic prologue. Uh, It's a description of Jesus uh, as God the creator who existed with God the Father before the world began. It's the the passage Pastor Pete preached on last week, which is a great tongue twister, by the way, 10 times fast, Pastor Pete preached a passage, you know. Um, After that, after that prologue, you've got the story of Jesus's ministry all the way up through chapter 12. You've got the story of his miracles and his teaching and all the things that he did over the course of about three years. What's interesting, though, is the second half of the book covers just about three days of Jesus's life. It goes from a, a big picture down to just a narrow focus. Uh, Chapters 18 to 21 are the story of how Jesus died and was buried and rose again, and then how he appeared to his disciples. But the the passages right before that in chapters 13 to 17 are what we call the upper room discourse or the upper room teaching. Uh, And what Jesus is doing here, this is a a conversation over the course of a single meal. It's it's just maybe an hour or so long. Uh, And what he's doing is he's sort of giving a a pre-commentary, an explanation of the things that happen at the end of his life. You got to remember that when we look at a symbol like a cross, we see something that is this religious spiritual symbol. Uh, But that's after 2,000 years of kind of seeing what happened when Jesus died. Uh, Before that, when the disciples looked at a cross, they just saw an execution. They they saw a tragic end to someone's life. And so Jesus knew they were going to be confused about what was about to happen to him. And so he wanted to give them some ideas, some categories that they could use to interpret what was going to go down. And the main thing he wants them to get is that the cross was an act of service. Let's start reading uh, in this beginning of the upper room teaching in chapter 13. 
It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. It says it's, it's Passover. Uh, Passover is one of the three big holidays in Jerusalem. It's the celebration of how God rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. If you've ever seen a Moses movie, you know, uh, Ten Commandments or Prince of Egypt or something like that, then you might be familiar with the story. It's the whole plagues, Red Sea, let my people go story, that whole thing. And for 1,500 years, the Jews had been celebrating this holiday. It was kind of like their 4th of July. It was the, the day their nation was born. And when they celebrated, the main way they did that was by gathering for meals in people's homes. And they ate a meal just like the Israelites did just before they were set free. And so Jesus and his disciples, who are all Jews, are in Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And there has been this sense among people who are around Jesus that something big was about to happen, and it was going to happen at Passover. As you read through the Gospel of John, there's this, this sense of anticipation that, that, that something, something is about to happen. And Jesus keeps saying, no, not yet, not yet. He says, my hour has not yet come. Keeps using that phrase, my hour has not yet come. And people are, are thinking, what's going on at this hour? And they're, they're speculating that when the hour comes, Jesus is going to proclaim himself king. He's going to take over. And they're looking at Jesus and they're like, yeah, this is the guy. This is the guy. He's going to march into Jerusalem. He's going to pull a Moses and stand up to the Romans and say, let my people go. And then Israel's going to be back on top. And all our enemies are going to grovel at our feet. And they're going to serve us. And so the hour is coming. The hour is coming. And maybe at Passover, this big nationalistic holiday, that's the perfect time for it to happen. So after 12 chapters of, of waiting for this hour, the passage finally says, the hour had come. This is it. It's all going to go down. But Jesus knows something at this moment that the rest of the people around him, they don't seem to recognize. He knows this is the end of his life. It says the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. This is the end. Jesus has 24 hours, and then he's dead. He's got one last chance, a final meal, one more conversation with his friends to say this is what it's all about. And the main thing that he wants to convey is this. He loves them. He loves them. That's the first point I want you to get. By serving, Jesus reveals God's love. He reveals God's love. The passage says, he loved them to the end. And that phrase has kind of a double meaning. Uh, on the one hand, it means that Jesus loved them to the end of his life. There, there wasn't a moment ever when his, his love for them wavered. He, to the final moment of his life, he was loving them. But it also means that he loved them to the greatest extent possible. He, he loved them completely. He loved them to the max. And, and this is really important. You've got to know this. God's love for you is unending. It's never going to stop. There will never be a moment where God ceases to love you. And God's love is unlimited. He is not holding back. He loves you as much as he possibly can already. He loves you to the end. And what Jesus is about to do, he's going to show us what that love looks like in action. Let's keep reading in verse 2. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. These two verses are so interesting side by side because they contrast two different things that are going on in the background. 
You can sort of think of these verses as two hidden conspiracies, two plots to take over the world that are going on behind the scenes, not just in this story, but all of Jesus' life. And not just Jesus' life, but the entire history of the world. On the one hand, you've got the devil's plot to take over the world. And on the other hand, you've got the plot of the Father, of God, to take back the world that he loves that has rebelled against him. And so these two conspiracies, they're, they're picking up steam and they're coming to a head and they're about to collide. And the devil has already selected his tool, Judas, one of Jesus' 12 closest followers, one of Jesus' best friends. And he's lured Judas into a deal with the religious leaders. He's going to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Now, now 30 pieces of silver is a, a little bit more than a month's wages. So it's not a small amount of money. But when you think about what Judas is going to do, it's not really a big amount of money either. He's going to sell out a friend to be killed. But in this moment, it has captured Judas's heart. And, and this is the devil's scheme. He's going to try to take Jesus out before Jesus takes over. And he's going to use his favorite tool, human selfishness. You see, the, the devil loves to do this. He loves to get people turned in on themselves so that, that they're all consumed with, with their own gain and their own benefit and their own needs and wants. And what happens is it breaks their relationships. Yeah, people get, get so self-absorbed that they're willing to lie and steal and betray, even the people that are closest to them, if it means that they get what they need or what they want. And, and the devil uses this in all of our lives in big ways and small ways. On the other side, though, the Father has sent a representative too. He sent Jesus. And Jesus is carrying out a plan that was made a long, long time ago. Before the world was created, God knew what it would cost him. He knew that if he made this particular world with, with these people in it, that we would rebel against him. We, we would run away from him, the, the giver of life, the source of all goodness and beauty, and we would run, run headlong into death and destruction and pain. And he knew the mess that we would make of our lives, the mess we would make of all our relationships, the mess we would make of his world. And God knew that the only way to clean up that mess would be to dive down into the thick of the mess himself, to get messy and to pay the price to clean it up. He knew all of that before he made the world. He knew what it would cost him if he did it. And he chose to do it anyway. So that's the, the, the background of this moment, these two cosmic conspiracies colliding. It's the ultimate showdown of good and evil. And Jesus knows exactly what's going on. He, he knows that Judas is going to betray him. He knows the devil is out to get him. But he also knows another thing. He knows he can do whatever he wants in response. Look at what the passage says. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And notice that it doesn't just say the Father had put all things under his power. It says Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. The, the emphasis is on Jesus' awareness of his own authority. He knows he can do whatever he wants. He knows he's in control. He knows that the power that created the universe is at his fingertips. So what does he do? What, what does someone who knows he's got all that power do when he's facing down the person who's going to kill him? What does someone with ultimate power do to respond to ultimate evil? Let's read what Jesus does. Verse 4. He got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. 
After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Pick up how strange this is. The, the disciples are sitting around the table. Don't, don't picture like a high table like we use in our culture. Uh, the table is probably low to the ground. And, and the guys are, are, are reclining at the table and their feet are kind of sticking out behind them. And Jesus gets up and he, he, he works his way around behind the table and he, he grabs each person's foot and he starts to scrub them clean. Now, these are not the, the feet of men uh, who, you know, wash their feet all the time. They, these are men who, who walked everywhere they went, on dirt roads, behind livestock, in places where people threw their trash. They, they weren't wearing closed-toed shoes and socks. They, they had not gone out for a, a mani-pedi to make sure their feet were pretty for the Passover meal. The, these are rough, calloused feet, and who knows what shape their toenails were in. The, this was not a pleasant task. And when you think about it, think about how long it would have taken. I mean, there are 12 guys around the table. That's 24 feet. And if each foot took a minute or two, that meant Jesus spent a half an hour or more hunched over those feet, scrubbing, working them. And it wasn't just physically unpleasant. It was socially degrading, too. I mean, normally you would wash your own feet for the same reason you floss your own teeth, you know? Like, why would you ask someone else to do that for you? And if someone did it for you, they would always be your social inferior, far below you in status. They would be a slave. And in that culture, status was a huge deal. It's what we call an honor-shame culture. So social standing, respecting your superiors, knowing your place, these were really high priorities in that culture. We tend to de-emphasize those sorts of things in, in our culture. You know, if you think about it, if, if I went to a, a restaurant with my boss and it was a, a place that had a, you know, a soda fountain and uh, we, we drank through our, our whole glasses and my boss said, oh, hey, let me go get you a refill. And he grabbed my glass and went to go fill it up. I wouldn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Don't do that. You have shamed me. You're my superior. Let me serve you. But in that culture, that would have been a big deal. But if you want to get a sense of what it might have felt like for them, uh, this would be like this. If I invited my boss over for dinner, and, and during the meal, he excused himself and didn't come back for a while. And when I found him, he was cleaning my bathroom. And I'd be like, hey, Pastor Jim, where'd you find that toilet brush? Please don't do that, you know? <laughs> it's that sort of feeling, like, why Jesus are you doing this? Why would you lower yourself like that? But there's something deeper going on here. Jesus wasn't just looking for some random, unpleasant task to do just because it was embarrassing or something. He wasn't lowering himself just to lower himself. The act meant something. Washing was an act of hospitality. So if you went over to someone's house and they were going to have a meal with you, they would provide a basin for you to wash in. And if they had servants, they might provide them to wash you. Uh, but that was the way that guests could make themselves presentable for the meal. It was a way to prepare. It was a way of saying, you and I, we're going to sit down together. We're going to be physically close around this table. We're going to share food from the same dish. We're going to share our, our, our thoughts and our hearts together. We're going to get closer. And to be respectful of that, you, don't need, you need to be cleaned up from all the things you picked up on the way here. Washing was a way to go deeper into community, deeper into relationship. It was a sign of welcome. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And remember, he's trying to help them understand what the cross is going to mean. Because the cross is going to be a physically unpleasant experience, to put it really mildly. It's going to be socially degrading. But Jesus wants them to know it's also an invitation into a relationship. 
It's a way for God to welcome people who are far off to come close to him, to share their hearts, and for him to share his heart with them. That's what the cross means. Here's what's even more remarkable about this. Think about who was at the table when Jesus did this. Judas. Can you imagine what would have been going through Jesus' mind as, as he held Judas's foot? He is touching his betrayer. This is the guy who would end him. Jesus knows, I, I can do anything I want. I've got the power. I could end this before it begins. Jesus holds all things in his hands. But at this moment, his hands are scraping manure off of Judas's heel. Think of who else was there. Peter. Peter is so passionate. He, he he's, he's talks such a good game, but he has no follow-through. And by the end of the night, he's going to go from saying, I would die for you, to saying, I don't know the guy. You think about the other disciples, they're just the same. They're, they're doubters, they're fearful, they're weak. Every single one of them is going to let Jesus down. Why is Jesus doing this for these people? Well, this is what we call grace. It is God's kindness to those who don't deserve it. You, you need to know this. God does not say, clean yourself up, and then I will love you. No, he says, I love you already. Let me make you clean. I, I wanna be in relationship with you. Let me make it so that you can come into my presence without feeling ashamed, without feeling guilty. He, God does not love us because we're worthy. He makes us worthy because he loves us. That is grace. And it's one of the unique things about Christianity. The, the idea of a God who draws near to unworthy sinners is a radical idea in other religions. It's one of the things that I think is going to be exciting about having Nabil Qureshi here in a few weeks. Uh, coming out of uh, an Islamic background, uh, and as he investigated Christianity, this is one of the things he discovered about our faith that was so amazing, that God loves sinners, draws near to sinners. And, and, and Pastor Jim is going to interview Nabil, and he's going to uh, share the story of how he came to this realization, uh, his, his uh, three-long-year investigation of Christianity. It's an incredible story. I want to encourage you, get the word out about this. It's going to be amazing. Uh, there, there are three groups of people that I would think of if you're thinking of who to invite. Uh, the obvious one, first of all, is your Muslim friends. If you know someone who's Muslim, uh, go ahead and invite them along, no matter what they think about Christianity. Because uh, what you can do is you can just say, hey, my church, we're going to interview this guy. He, he used to be a Muslim. I would love to get your perspective of someone who still is a Muslim and, and, and hear what you think about that story. And then just use it as a jumping off point to say, hey, let's talk about what you believe, talk about what I believe, and start a conversation. The other sort of person to invite to this is someone who is seeking, someone who's on a journey. Because that's really what Nabil was going through. Uh, the title of his book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And the, the word Allah is just the Arabic word for God. And so even if someone isn't coming out of a Muslim background, and I know most people in our area are not, um, if they're looking for God, if they're seeking something more, they're going to resonate with this story, I promise. Also, if there are people in your life that are, are wrestling intellectually with the faith, uh, this would be a great uh, one to bring them to. Uh, Nabil is a brilliant guy, okay? He has an MD, two master's degrees, and he's finishing up a PhD at Oxford. So not a dumb dude, all right? And part of his journey was wrestling with the, the historical and philosophical claims of Christianity. So if you've got a friend who's in that uh, situation, they might connect with him and you might want to invite them. Uh, as Pastor Jim has been talking with Nabil, he has expressed to the staff that this might be the most spiritually significant WOW weekend we've ever had. Uh, and and the, part of the reason is because this is a story that points to what we're talking about today. 
the God who loves sinners and draws near to them. Let's keep looking in our passage. Let's start in verse 6. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not everyone was clean. Here's the second thing I want you to see in this passage. By serving, Jesus cleanses our sin. By serving, Jesus cleanses our sin. Now, in in this conversation between Jesus and Peter, there is a ton going on, and I'm not going to be able to explain most of it. I I really just want to highlight one phrase. In verse 8, where Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Now, it should be obvious that this conversation is about more than just getting dirt off your body. The washing was a symbolic act. It was pointing to a bigger reality. It was pointing to the fact that if we want to come to the table, if we want to be in relationship with God, we've got to be cleansed. We cannot leave the mess of our lives unattended. It's got to be cleaned up. But a lot of us, we're like Peter, and we say, no, Jesus, you will never wash me. Because like Peter, we've got the whole religion thing sort of upside down and backwards. We think that the the whole God thing works like this. I serve God, and then God takes care of me. And it goes in that order. You know, I do good things for God, God is happy, and now he blesses me. Religion is sort of this way of getting your act together, of cleaning yourself up, so that you're on God's good side. That's what it's for. And, And especially when the topic of service and volunteering comes up, that's the way a lot of people think about it. They feel like, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of uh, volunteering here to build up some credit with God, earn some points with him. And, and maybe they might even feel like they're sort of making up for things that they've done in the past, you know, sort of, sort of uh, filling up a debt. Or, or maybe they've experienced something good in their life and they're thinking, well, now I owe God, I got to pay him back for that. And what they're trying to do is, is clean themselves up or at least keep themselves clean. But what Jesus says is, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. You gotta understand, no amount of good deeds is gonna clean you up. Sometimes though, people are serving, but they're not really thinking about that. They're not thinking about cleaning themselves up because they don't think they're dirty. They just assume they're clean. For them, the idea of religion is about good people, getting together with other good people, doing good things to make the world a better place. It's a place for clean people to go out into a messy world and help clean it up. Which might be a nice thought, but it skips something really crucial. Something that is central to the teaching of Christianity. You see, we believe that on our own, we are not part of the solution. We're part of the problem. Each of us is a mess, and we're contributing to the mess of the world. You need someone to clean you. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Some of you are here, and you're resisting this. You've been showing up for church. You you may be even serving someplace. But you've never really surrendered and said, Jesus, I need you to make me clean. Uh, Sometimes people think that the hardest part of coming to faith in Jesus is letting Jesus be your king. You know, he he becomes the Lord of your life. You've got to obey him. He calls the shots. And people say that, that's unappealing. But what's interesting is for a lot of people, the harder thing is letting Jesus serve them. Saying, I need you. I need you to take care of me. I can't handle it on my own. 
It's sort of like if you've ever um, had surgery or broken a bone or been sick for a while and you needed other people to take care of you. You, you know how embarrassing that feels? You know, you, you feel weird asking for help and having to depend on other people and you, you just sort of feel weird that you, you're, it's like I'm helpless, I can't really do this on my own and, and, and it's hard to say, can you help me? A, a lot of people approach their spiritual lives the same way. They, they don't wanna say to God, I'm helpless. I, I can't fix my own problems. I'm not really on top of my life. They, they, they want to say, I'll do it on my own. They don't want to say, help me. Our, our pride can't seem to handle it. But, but think of how foolish it would be if you were in the hospital. You're, you're, you're in the bed recovering from surgery and you never asked the doctor for help. You never asked the nurse for help or, or help from your friends or your family who loved you. It, it might sting our ego a little bit to let God serve us, but it's exactly what we need. If we never say, God, clean me up, we will never be clean. It doesn't matter how much you serve or give or how many times you attend a worship service. Jesus says, if I don't clean you, you have no part with me. So the question for some of you is, will you surrender? Will you let Jesus wash you? Let me connect this to something. For some of you who have made that choice, you've surrendered to Jesus. What we do as a symbol of that is baptism. It's a symbol of that cleansing. That's why we use water. It's a cleansing from our, our, our sin and our guilt. It's a symbol of saying Jesus is the only one who can cleanse me from those things. So we go down into the water and we come up. It's like a, a symbolic bath. And here's the thing. Those of you who have made that commitment, you said, Jesus, I do need your forgiveness. I do need your cleansing. But you've never been baptized. Let me just say this to you. It's time. It's time to do it. In, in the Bible, people never wait a long time to get baptized. As soon as they get the Jesus thing, they say, let's do this right away. There, there is no one in the Bible who waits years to get baptized. So if you've been holding out, I, I, we do baptisms every few months here at the church. Uh, there's another one coming up in the fall. Make it a priority if you haven't done that to do that. Uh, especially you guys. I, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to speculate about the reasons. Uh, but we have noticed recently uh, that we have had more women up here for baptisms than men. And we think it's odd because we know that when people respond to the gospel here, it's pretty evenly split between men and women. So I don't know why, guys, you're not up here, um, but no more excuses. Let's do this. I want this stage packed with men uh, this fall, okay? Uh, the reason baptism is important, though, is because it, it, it expresses this thing, that by serving us, Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked him. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Here's the third thing to see from this passage. By serving, Jesus sets us an example. He sets us an example. He says it straight up. You should do as I have done for you. Now, this does not mean that you must literally wash another person's feet. Although I have been in services where we've done that. It's a really meaningful thing. Uh, Michelle and I actually did this as a part of our wedding to symbolize how we want our marriage to be. But by washing the disciples' feet, Jesus is symbolizing a, a bigger lifestyle. He's talking about something that we should imitate, which is looking for the difficult things that need to be done and offering to do them. Uh, offering to do the things that will draw people into relationship when we serve them. It, it means asking the difficult question, what can I do that no one wants to do? 
What can I do that no one wants to do? We've got to look at each arena of our lives and ask that. At work, what can I do that no one wants to do? It probably starts with cleaning out the shared microwave, because if it's anything like the one here, it is disgusting, okay? It might mean picking up an extra shift or, or partnering with that person that other people want to avoid. At home, what can I do that no one else wants to do? Uh, lately in our house, our two-year-old has been waking up fighting, uh, like in the middle of the night, kicking, screaming, clawing. So it's a, a 1 a.m. tantrum and a 3 a.m. tantrum and the dreaded 5.15 tantrum. That's the worst because it's close enough to when we would have gotten up that you really can't fall back asleep. So you just lose like 45 minutes. It's horrible. Uh, so neither my wife and I want to get up to help our daughter. And that's the reason I am not happy I'm preaching on this passage today. It means I'm uh, getting up early this week. Sort of an occupational hazard if you're a preacher, you know, your spouse knows you know better. <laughs> Ask the question at home, what can I do that no one wants to do? What, what can you do for your parents, for your kids, for your siblings? What can you do for your friends? What can you do for your neighbors? And of course, you're not just looking for something unpleasant just because it's unpleasant. That's not the point. You're looking for things that will alleviate real burdens, things that will enable other people to succeed and thrive, things that will deepen relationships. And those things might cost you. They might be hard. I met a guy the other day who was telling me how he was recently overlooked for a promotion. There, there was a position in his department at work that he felt like he was really suited for, that he'd make a, a great fit. Uh, but there was another person in the company who had been there longer. And so they, they moved this guy over and, uh, and put him in that position above this guy. Uh, and, and, and the guy feels frustrated now because he, he feels like he would do a better job than this person. Uh, and he's stuck in a position he doesn't want to be in. He feels like the, you know, the, the, the ceiling's there. And so he doesn't know what to do. Well, what would Jesus do in that situation? Jesus would wrap a towel around his waist and he'd fill a bowl and he'd wash the boss's feet. He, he would look for ways to help the boss succeed in his new role. He'd fill him in about things he might not know about the department, details that, that he might look stupid if he, he overlooked. He, he would build him up in front of other coworkers so that he had the respect of the people that he was leading. He, he would make sure that performance stayed steady or even improved under his leadership. And, and that is a really hard thing to do. How do you push forward when you're trying to serve someone you don't really want to serve? What do you do when serving feels costly? I find it helpful to keep a couple of things in mind. The first is this. I ask myself, what happens to people who consistently do this? People who always serve. People who are always doing the hard things to build up the people around them. In the short run, that sort of person might get taken advantage of. But in the long run, the servant always succeeds. Judas is the one in the story with the short-term vision. He is so self-focused that he's willing to sell out a friend for basically a year-end bonus. Jesus, though, suffers. It, it is costly for sure, but, but in the long run, look at what he does. He saves the world. He is exalted to the highest place. He's glorified. Humility and servanthood always win the long game. Humility and servanthood always win the long game. You don't even need to be a Christ follower to see this. I mean, think about it. Who would you rather hire? A person who's always looking out for themselves or always looking out for others? Which kind of person would you rather be married to? Which kind of person would you rather have as your parent or as your child? Which person would you rather have as a coach or a teacher or a lab partner or anything in life? And which sort of person are you? Are you someone who serves yourself or serves others? 
And I think this is a really important thing for us to learn, those of us who are young, especially if you see yourself as someone who's going places, you've got ambitions in life. I want to say this, if you are ambitious for anything in life, be ambitious for this, becoming a servant. I say this as a young leader pleading with other young leaders. It is so easy for us to resent those who are above us. We're full of energy and ideas and new thoughts and people 20 or 30 years older than us, we look at them and we think, why the heck are they doing it that way? And we get impatient and we get antsy and we get critical. And all this does is undermines our development as leaders. It's not that having new ideas or critiquing old ways are bad. It's the attitude that, that gets built up with it. That's what makes the difference. One of the best things we can do is learn to be servants, to do the hard things, to take the back seat, to support somebody else's agenda. And here's why. Because if we serve long enough, when the time comes for us to speak up, we will speak with a voice that is full of love and not shrill. And when we speak, other people will lean in and listen and say, I want to hear what you have to say, because I know you're bought in. And if we ever advance and we get to a place where we're leading other people, you better believe we're going to want other people who are servant-hearted if they're in that role. And if you finally get to the place where you're at the top, the goal that you've set for yourself, and you're leading other people, and along the way, you never learned to look out for the needs of other people. You never became a servant. You may find that when you get to that spot, you are not the life-giving leader you thought you would be. It may be hard, but it's important. Learn servanthood now. Here's the other thing I keep in mind when serving gets hard. It's how much we have received from Christ already. The, the order of the story here in John 13 is really important. Jesus washes our feet, and then he says, go wash the feet of others. Jesus serves us, and then he says, go serve others. We will not serve other people well. We will not serve in a sustainable way unless we, we drink deeply of this idea that God has served us already. I mean, think about it this way. The reason we usually avoid serving is we think if we serve, we won't have enough. It might be in even simple things. Like if I'm gonna wash the dishes and clean the bathroom tonight for my wife, then I'm worried I'm not gonna have enough me time, enough time to relax and, and refresh or, or if uh, I, I do something that makes my boss look good, I'm worried I'm not going to get enough credit, you know, and that's going to stall my career somehow. Or if I help out a, a needy neighbor, then they're going to start asking for more help in the future, and I'm not going to have enough control over when and how I interact with this person. Uh, serving, uh, sacrificially especially, it feels like a risk. It risks our comfort, our control, our ambitions. But if we recognize that Jesus has already secured all that we need by serving us, then serving others is not a risk. Our needs are already met. We can risk temporary discomfort because we know long-term joy is guaranteed. We can not be worried about our advancement or a short-term setback because in Christ, we know we have been made heirs of God. He is leading us to ultimate glory. We don't have to be in control of every single situation because our lives are in the hands of one who loves us and served us. We're going to burn ourselves out trying to meet the needs of other people unless we have a deep confidence that in Jesus, God has met all our needs. The one who holds the world in his hands has held our feet. As we wrap up today, I just want to encourage you. 
We got the serving fair out there. Go and check that out. Uh, even if you're already serving, uh, let me just say this. We are not trying to get you to do one more thing, pile on to your busy schedule. Uh, but even if you're serving someplace already, go and walk through those, those tables out in the, the lobby of each of our campuses uh, because you'll see the things that our church is doing and you will be inspired. Uh, it, it'll be really cool to see all that's going on. But if you're not serving someplace, maybe you, you've just been attending services and you're, you're thinking, I should get a little bit more involved. This is about as easy as it gets uh, to get plugged into something new. Uh, if you approach a table, we are not gonna sign you up for life to serve in that ministry. It's just about getting information. But I would encourage you, go and find something that fits you so that you can go deeper and serve within our community. L let me leave you with one final thought. Uh, this is one of those teachings of Jesus that the world around us, people who are not followers of Christ, they look at Jesus and they say, this is what's so cool about Jesus. We, we admire this. The, the guy who, who, who gets near to people in need, who serves, who, who gives of himself, that's really impressive. We think that's cool. But when they look at Jesus' followers, they say, it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like they're following in his footsteps. And, and there might be something to that criticism. But here's what I want to ask. What would happen... If all of us, the, the, just, maybe even just the 5,000 people here at Christ Community Church, if we went out into our community and every single day as we're at work or interacting with neighbors, we're, we're asking the question, what can I do that no one wants to do? What's the hard thing that would alleviate a burden for someone? What if I serve like Jesus did in this situation? If we all did that, how would that change how people looked at the church and looked at Jesus? I don't know, but I want to find out. We're going to sing one more song, and as we do that, we're going to take our offering for today. So let me pray before we do that. Jesus, I, every time I read this story, it, it amazes me. It's just, it's, it's so beautiful, the way you loved us like that. that, that you would lower yourself. The one who held everything, had all the power, that you would lower yourself to serve us that you would lower yourself to serve your enemies. Jesus, I, I was one of your enemies. And you even washed my feet. Jesus, you are, are so, so amazing. And we, we simply want to say thank you. We want to express our gratitude and our worship because of your love. And so that's what this is about, this, this song and uh, the, what we offer and the lives that we live. We want them to be an offering of thanks. And we give it in your name. Amen.